a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. This is the fifth study in our series in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 32, and we've reached verses 26 and 27. Actually, we've already started looking at those verses in the previous study, the fourth study, so we're going to pick it up where we left off. Last time we began looking at some of the points or arguments that people try to make to justify homosexual behavior. I'm talking about people who might even call themselves evangelical Christians in some cases. That's happening today. And last time we took into consideration the argument that some people make that kind of goes like this. Look, the Bible only condemns certain kinds of homosexual behavior. It doesn't condemn all kinds of homosexual behavior. And we looked at a word that Paul used as he discussed homosexual behavior. Apparently he invented it, by the way, in, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the word is arsenokoites. So we looked at that in the last study. If you missed that study, I really do think you need to go back and watch it. For one thing, it sets the tone for the study. It's very important to set the tone and then set the stage for what we're going to be looking at today. Don't just jump into the middle of it here. Go back if you haven't watched that first one and watch it first. Or the, actually, it's the fourth one in the series. But having said that, there are some other things that we need to understand as well as what we've already tried to cover. So first, let's just read these verses one more time, beginning at verse 21. These are verses we've been looking at during the three previous studies. And this is the word of God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. So now let's pick it up where we left off last time and consider the second argument that's sometimes used to justify homosexual behavior. Sometimes people will say, you know what? Many Bible commands are no longer heeded in our day. We don't try to obey all the commands. And we ought to treat the ban on homosexual behavior the same way we treat those other commands. And I think the idea of that kind of thinking is, look, this is an Old Testament command. It's, it's meant for another day. It's not meant for us today. Just like a whole lot of the other Old Testament commands. You know, they'll say there are many biblical commands that ancient people had to take seriously. But today... We Christians just ignore them. 
So logically, we ought to be able to ignore the prohibitions against homosexual behavior in the same way. Doesn't that make sense? <laughs> That's the logic. For example, they might say we ignore the command not to touch a woman who's having her period. That's Leviticus chapter 15. Or maybe the command not to wear a garment made of two different fabrics, Leviticus 19. So they say, hey, we can place these commands against homosexual behavior in the same category as these old commands. The idea is if we can ignore those other strange commands, we ought to be able to ignore this one too, right? <laughs> Here's the problem. The second argument shows a lack of understanding of the different kinds of laws we find in the Old Testament. There, there are different kinds of laws, guys. Of course it's true that Christians have always recognized that there are many, many biblical commands in the Old Testament that are no longer binding on believers today. But some Christians seem to be a little fuzzy about this. They're all, they kind of blend them all together. So it's really important for us to understand that there really are different kinds of commands in the Old Testament and at least get a little bit of understanding about which command belongs in which type or category. For example, some commands like the commands regarding animal sacrifices and the Levitical priesthood commands. Well, those commands were only meant for a period of time that ended when Jesus came, right? We all know that, don't we? I mean, these commands pointed men to the coming Messiah. And when he came, when Jesus got here, those commands came to an end. We don't offer sacrificial lambs to God anymore. The true lamb of God, Jesus, he's come, <laughs> He's the one to whom all those priests and all those sacrificial animals pointed. And we realize that. And so these, those things came to an end. And there were some other commands in the Old Testament, like commands regarding circumcision and the dietary laws and the Sabbath laws that were given in order to keep Israel separate and distinct from other nations. That was very important. God intended Israel to be the people through whom he would give the world First of all, his word, the Bible, and his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So God did not intend for the Jewish people to be assimilated into the rest of the world. He didn't want them to lose their identity. So God gave them some commands like these to keep them separated. And then when they were scattered among other people, it still kept them from being absorbed from just disappearing into these other people groups. God used these commands to keep them from losing their identity. So that was very important. We also find another kind of command in the Old Testament. These commands were part of what we might call civil commands. God gave them to Moses in order to structure the life of the early Israelite society so that it could function well as a, as a culture, as a society. For example, there was a command that told debt collectors you may not enter a house to collect a debt. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 24. There were laws having to do with regulating the divorce or laws about inheritance and laws about landmarks and lots of other civil laws. There was a law that people had to put a little safety wall around their flat roofs. You know, in those days, people went up on the roofs pretty often. They were flat. And it was there to keep people from falling off and getting hurt. So... God said, you got you to build that little wall up there. That was part of their civil law. That was like a housing regulation, you see. And so those civil laws that we find in the Old Testament correspond to our laws against speeding, maybe, or maybe our zoning laws, housing regulation laws again. They were binding on ancient Israel. 
but they're not binding on us today. Some of them don't even make sense really to us today. And then, of course, there are commands that God gave that are part of what we call God's great eternal moral law. These are commands for all people of all time. And usually, these are what come to our mind, right? When we talk about God's commands, these are the things we usually think of first. For example, there's a law against stealing. There's, there are laws against murder, coveting, committing adultery, bearing false witness, idolatry and many others, part of God's moral law. So the real question becomes for us, when we're looking at this question we're looking at today, is there a way that we can discern to which category the commands against homosexual behavior belong? Where, where do they fit in? Well, yes, God's given us a way to understand this and see it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we learn that this command falls in the same category as commands against fornication and idolatry and adultery and theft and coveting and drunkenness and extortion. Homosexual behavior is listed in the same list with those things I just mentioned. And I believe almost everybody would have to agree if you believe that any law is part of God's eternal moral law. These are examples of God's great eternal moral law. Don't you? Don't you see that? So the conclusion just seems very clear that the prohibition against homosexual behavior is also part of God's eternal moral law. It's not part of the sacrificial laws. It's not part of the ceremonial laws or the civil laws and, and not the laws designed just to keep Israel separate and intact. So the command against homosexual behavior is definitely not in the same category, for example, as a command to avoid mixing fabrics and clothing. I mean, sometimes people try to say that, but that's, that just shows a lack of understanding of different kinds of laws. Here's another argument you may have heard. Some will say, look, the church is maturing. The church is maturing past the kind of thinking that says that homosexual behavior is sin just as it moved past thinking that it was okay to have slaves. And the idea here is that the church is getting more mature as time goes on and may take centuries, but gradually the church is growing up and leaving some things behind that, you know, were really bad ideas, but we used to hold on to them. So they might say, for example, look, Christians once thought it was acceptable to own slaves, but the time came when almost all of them realized that's not good to hold, hold slaves. So they moved on past that notion. They gave up slavery, and Christians quit teaching that, quit believing that. They'll say homosexual behavior is the same way. Or they might say Christians once thought interracial marriage was wrong, but eventually most of them realized it really wasn't wrong, so they moved on past that idea. And they say, this is a similar situation. Christians used to think that same-sex marriage was wrong. Now we're finally beginning to realize, hey, we just misunderstood. Now we realize it's really okay. Now we can move on beyond our mistakes of the past. But you know what? They've got it backward. Here's a better analogy. Once there were some people who said they were Christians who thought slaveholding was acceptable to God. But there were other Christians who understood the Bible more clearly, who knew that was just not true. That was wrong. And so these Christians showed the slaveholders 
the sinfulness of slaveholding and eventually justifying slaveholding was abandoned. It wasn't biblically correct. In the same way today, there are some people who say they're Christians who think that some homosexual behavior is acceptable to God. But there are other Christians who understand the Bible more clearly who are helping them to see that that, that behavior is sinful. And so hopefully the time will come when Christians will soon abandon that attempt to justify homosexual behavior. That's a better analogy. There are also some who will try to claim that to demand celibacy of people who identify as homosexuals is unloving and unfair. Just, just isn't right to demand celibacy. Here's the argument. They says it would just be unloving for God to require those who have homosexual desires to be committed to lifelong celibacy because God provided heterosexual marriage as an outlet for heterosexual desires. So surely he would have provided homosexual marriage for those with homosexual desires. That's the logic. You see what they're saying? It's just not fair. You have heterosexual desires. You get to have a wife. So they say, I have homosexual desires. I should get to have a partner too. But what that kind of thinking overlooks, guys, is that there are many, many situations in life where God expects us to say no to certain desires. That's true for all of us. I mean, let's be honest. There are many, many men who would have very strong desires to have sex with women who are not their wives. God says you have to resist that desire. There are people who have strong desires to have sex with kids. God says you can't do that. You've got to resist that desire. There are single adults who have a strong desire for heterosexual sex. God says you have to resist that desire. You can't give into it. Of course, there are many other desires that Christians may have that also have to be resisted. There are people who have strong desires to get drunk or to take drugs to kind of escape reality for a while, escape life difficulties. God says you've got to resist that desire. It's not okay. You know what? On top of that, there really are some people out there used to be easier to find their testimonies than it is today, but there's some people out there who testify that they once had strong homosexual desires, but at least in their case, I know not every case, I'm not arguing that, but for them, God changed their desires. Some of them are married to women or their mothers or kids now. This happened. But it's just wrong, guys, to conclude that because we have strong desires to do something, means that that something we desire to do must be good. When God says a certain behavior is sinful and we have a strong desire to do it, that strong desire doesn't make it okay to just satisfy the desire. Here's another argument, and we've already looked at this briefly, I think, but some say homosexual relationships are producing good fruit, so surely they're okay, right? Because they say in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you'll recognize them by their fruits. And they say, look at our fruit. Look at the same-sex marriage. We're producing good fruit. We're happy people. We're serving society well. We're good employees. We're good citizens. Good fruit. Here's the problem in that argument, guys. <laughs> what we're doing there is assuming that we're the ones who get to decide what good fruit looks like. But we don't. We don't get to decide what is and what's not good fruit. God decides that. He's the only one who decides it. It's because we don't have enough 
ability to look into the future and to understand all the implications of our behaviors to decide what's good fruit. We need God to tell us that. I mean, think about it. Some men may be having sex with women who are not their wives, and they might be really nice guys. They might be very kind. They might be good employees. They might be good citizens. Does that mean they're bearing good fruit? That therefore their adultery must be okay? Mm -mm. So we have to think about what it really means to produce good fruit. And, and thankfully, Jesus doesn't make us guess. He tells us. In the very next verse, in fact, look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's it. That's the good fruit. Doing God's will. How do we know God's will? We learn God's will by studying God's word. Jesus goes on to say, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? We cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. That sounds like good fruit, doesn't it? But do you hear what Jesus says in the next verse? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, who? You workers of lawlessness. We just don't get to define what good fruit looks like. Good fruit is doing the will of the Father, our Father, God. And His will is revealed to us in His Word. And He clearly says that homosexual behavior is wrong. God reveals to us that homosexual behavior really is bad fruit, even if it seems good to us. Because, like I said, just with, as with other sin, this is not the only sin, God can see the end result of it. God can see where this leads, even when we can't. So God's not being arbitrary. Don't get that idea. God forbids things because he knows that ultimately these things don't result in human flourishing. They result in bad outcomes. And that's true of homosexual behavior. There's another argument from the Bible that some people use. <laughs> you'll, you'll have heard this one, I bet. It's all from this, also from the Sermon on the Mount. They say, we must not condemn homosexual behavior because Jesus tells us not to judge others. Judge not that you be not judged. Very clear command, right? And what they'll say is, look, God deals with each one of us differently, you see. He deals with you one way. He deals with me another way. You don't have anything to say about how God deals with me. When you tell me that homosexual behavior is sin, you are judging me. Jesus commands you not to do that. That's the thinking. Of course, this verse is one of the most quoted verses in the whole Bible, especially by people who don't really understand the Bible much and people who are not Christians. And of course, it's true. The verse is certainly in the Bible. There's got to be some sense in which we are forbidden to judge others. But we have to look at what the whole Bible says about this. The Bible also says, do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So there's a kind of judging that we are commanded to do. You see my point? Jesus said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's the kind of judging we're commanded to do. So obviously there's some sense in which we're commanded to judge. And, of course, there's some sense in which we're forbidden to judge. What's that mean? Well, it simply means the word judge has different meanings in different contexts. That's not unusual at all. That's true of many words in both Greek and English. You know what I mean by that. Some situations to judge might mean to condemn someone to hell. In other situations, it might mean 
to evaluate the unspoken internal motivations that others might have. It could also mean to pronounce guilty. And many times it simply means to make a decision about whether an action or behavior is right or wrong, to test something, to discern something, to prove the rightness or wrongness of something, to judge. And what I think is that when practicing homosexuals tell us, don't judge me, they may be interpreting the word judge in that last sense. They think that Jesus is teaching us that we should quit saying that their behavior is sinful. We should quit trying to decide what behavior is sinful and what's not sinful. They think that when we say that homosexual behavior is sinful, we're disobeying Jesus' command to judge not. But we know that's not what Jesus meant. We know that because there are too many other places in Scripture where we're commanded to judge in this very sense. Here's some more examples. Test everything. Test everything. You test things with Scripture, by the way. Hold fast that which is good. That's another kind of judging we're commanded to do. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says you need to do that kind of judging. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Jesus said. We're commanded to do that. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing, you hear that? By testing, you may discern what's the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. That's the kind of judging that we have to do. Very clear. Try to discern, he said, what's pleasing to the Lord. That's a judging we have to do so that you may approve what's excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's the kind of judging we're commanded to do. So when biblical Christians graciously and lovingly affirm that according to the Bible, we just have to agree with God, homosexual behavior is sinful, therefore it should not be practiced and certainly should not be encouraged or celebrated or endorsed by the state or anybody else. We're just doing our best to obey commands like these. God says it's wrong, and we're just saying, yes, Lord, we're submitting to you. You're in charge, not us. Okay, I've saved for last what I think might be the most difficult one for some Christians, and here's the argument. Look, we overlook lots of other sins in the church. If homosexual behavior is really sinful, why can't we just overlook it too? Just kind of live and let live. Basically, they're saying, look, you guys have overlooked many, many different kinds of ongoing sin in your churches. There are members in good standing who are having sex with their girlfriends. There are people who are going through unbiblical divorces. There are gluttons. There are people with ongoing anger problems. There are men who are addicted to porn. So why do you suddenly draw the line when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues? Why don't you just let us be, live and let live? What this really boils down to is an accusation that the church has often not done a very good job of restoring members who've fallen into sin, or if they refuse to be restored, eventually exercising church discipline. That really is a big problem in many of our churches. We, have, we need to admit that's a problem, and you can see where it leads to. But listen, while it, while it may be true that we've not done as well as we should in the past, that's not a very good reason to say, oh, well... I guess we've blown it before. We might as well blow it again. That's not very good thinking. That can't be pleasing to the Lord, can it? And listen, I think most churches, if someone wanted to join that church 
And they said, by the way, I need to let you know I'm having sex with my girlfriend. Is that all right? <laughs> or if they said, by the way, I need to tell you as I join here that I do have a problem with porn. Is that okay? <laughs> I don't think biblical Christians would say, oh, yeah, no, that's no big deal. It's cool. No, no. What we would say, any, any decent counselor in any church, any pastor would say, wait, 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 wait a minute. We need to slow down here a minute. We need to talk because we have some issues here that we've got to work through. No, it's not okay. I don't think there are many churches who would actually say it's no big deal. Do you? I don't think so. I don't think there are many churches who would say to a new member, oh, you're cheating on your taxes? Pfft, no big deal. I'm sure we've got members doing a lot worse than that. <laughs> no, no, we would not say that. And I know some people say, well, so are you claiming to be without sin? Because Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, remember? <laughs> no, we're not saying we're without sin. We're all sinners. All of us at one time or another probably tried to excuse and rationalize and justify our sin. That's a sin in and of itself. But God has gotten our attention, you see. We realize the horror of that kind of thinking. We repented. Yes, we all still fail. But our attitude towards sin doesn't change. We don't say, well, I'm, all, I'm, I'm, I'm weak in this area and I'm failing in this area, so therefore I'll just justify it. Not a, not a true Christian. We hate sin. We confess it. It's sin. We repent of it. We fall into it again. Maybe we're weak in the flesh, but we don't excuse it. We don't, even if we fall into it again and again and again, we realize I'm dependent on God's grace here, but I must never call good what God calls evil. That's not okay. I can't decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. God makes that decision and I must agree with God. That's what repentance is all about recognizing that God makes the decision about sin, and I agree with God. Let me just sum up today's study a little bit. We need to realize that there are many, many very sweet, wonderful people caught up in this error of trying to justify LGBTQ plus behavior. I mean, there are wonderful people out there who are caught up in this. And we also need to be honest and realize there are some situations it may be a little bit complicated and require some listening, a lot of love, a lot of prayer, a lot of study, a lot of godly counsel. A lot of people have just been inundated with some bad, bad teaching. We also need to realize with great alarm and sadness that because there's so many wonderful people caught up in it, we're finding many of our churches being tempted just to compromise God's truth in some ways. That's kind of the easy way out. And it makes our current hour an especially difficult time. There's so many churches that are just wanting to keep quiet, not say anything because they don't want to enter into the controversy. Many, many people, including people who call themselves Christians, are caving in. But that's not a good reason for us to cave, is it? To do what other people are doing? Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, and I think it's very appropriate right here. He said, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. It's a pretty good counsel. Well, Paul's not done here in Romans chapter 1, so we'll pick it up here next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for teaching us these things in your word and for putting this passage in your Roman, in your, in your book, this letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. 
Lord, thank you for this, this section of chapter 1 that begins in verse 16 and goes through the end of the chapter. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to internalize these things really well because in the day we're living, it seems these are especially important and they describe America so well. So help us, Lord, to take you very seriously. We know, Lord, that there's some people who are going to make accusations against us when we stand firm in your word and your truth. We know it's happened to Christians throughout history. It happened to Jesus. But, Lord, we want to be found with you. We want to stand firm. We want to be in Jesus. We want to agree with you about your word, even when it's not popular, even when it's difficult. So help us to stand firm in love, with grace, being merciful, compassionate, gentle, kind, full of joy, full of peace, full of your spirit, Christ-like, but not compromising your truth. Give us grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.